from the High Center Studios of Messiah College in the heart of our media empire in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 28 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Today's episode is a little bit different. It revolves around an incredible 10 days me and my family had this summer on a civil rights bus tour. Some of our patrons, uh, and we'll learn more about how you can become a patron here later in the episode, but some of our patrons will recall our special patrons-only interview with Todd Allen, who led that tour. But as we thought about our guest for this week, I thought I would reflect a little bit more on that experience on the civil rights bus tour. Yeah, I'm I'm actually excited just to hear your commentary today, John, because you've been talking about this trip ever since you got home. <laughs> but but the big question here, those of you who maybe haven't met John in person, you don't haven't realized, how does a six eight guy like yourself survive ten days on a bus tour? Yeah, that was a big worry for me going into it. I didn't know if I would be able to do it because of my height. And I'll be honest, it wasn't easy. Uh, fortunately I did not have to share a row with anyone. So I sat on one side of the bus, my wife and my daughter, Caroline, uh, my wife, Joy, my daughter, Caroline, they squeezed in on the other side. So we kind of had this established, you know, for 10 days, we had this like fear row on the bus and I was just able to kind of spread out uh, a little bit. I knew it would be uncomfortable going in, but then, you know, as you're on this trip and you begin to kind of empathize with what happened historically, began to think about the freedom riders and what they experienced on buses. Uh, and I said to myself, you know, who am I to complain? Yeah. I, as someone who has been following your work for a long time, I can say there, there are a number of things in which you comment with great uh, intensity. Yeah, your love of Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> your, the importance of historical thinking in, in modern civic life, but also how much you care about uh, leg room on airplanes and other <laughs> transportation. You have you have presented a number of posts on the blog about yeah. uh, the, the decreasing leg room on, on airplanes. And I'm about to get on an airplane myself, so I always think about what you have. Every time I complain about uh, yeah. lack of leg room on a plane, I think about you and I say, yeah, it could be worse. Well, I could go off now. We could do a whole episode <laughs> on this. Um, but yeah, there is what I learned with being on Twitter and social media, there's a whole culture of like tall people who want legroom. There's Twitter accounts, Twitter feeds, and so forth that I follow where we all complain. But, you know, there's nothing more, uh, I'll just say it, there's nothing more discouraging than to get on a plane, you you didn't get in in time to get the exit row, and then you look at the exit row, and there's like someone under five feet tall sitting in the exit row, and you just kind of try not to give a dirty look, and you kind of walk on by. So, yeah. believe me, I've had to deal with it. So, uh, where did you go on this trip? Yeah, it was like I said, it was a great trip. We hit most of the major sites of the civil rights movement in the South, Greensboro, Atlanta, uh, Albany, Georgia, Montgomery, Birmingham, Memphis, Nashville. Uh, we made multiple stops in each city. And you know, thanks to the connections of Todd Allen, uh, we met a lot of folks who actually lived through the civil rights movement. Yeah, okay. I mean, 
You bring up that you met a lot of people in the civil rights movement. You know, we're both 18th century, early American historians. Typically, you work a little yeah. bit more into the 19th century. But regardless, neither of us are meeting many of the historical figures that yeah. we're writing about. But this is, I mean, a wonderful opportunity for you to meet some people. So what were some of your takeaways from from being down there? Yeah, and the other thing is, too, uh, just playing off of what you just said there, Drew, a lot of, lot of people on the bus when they found out I was a historian. I mean, so people from Messiah College, since Messiah sent us on the trip, who knew I was the chair of the history department here. But there were a lot of other people not from Messiah College and even people from Messiah who didn't kind of know who I was. So I can't tell you how many times I got asked, uh, you know, is this accurate? Is this exhibit right? But, you know, I mean, you know, I like to joke as an early American historian, like anything after like the War of 1812 is current events, right? <laughs> right. It's not right. history. So for me, I was sort of soaking it in, too, as someone who does not teach the civil rights movement. I'll mention this in a second. Someone who has not really studied it in a scholarly way uh, at all. So, um, so, so, you know, in some ways I was like a tourist as well. But what was my takeaway? I mean, I had a lot of different takeaways. Like I said, Messiah College sends folks on the trip as part of their efforts to encourage diversity on campus. So many of the diversity folks who were who were on the trip were always kind of asking us to process, you know, our feelings about things. Um, you know, I'm a historian, I'm an academic, so I'm not a big fan of that kind of, you know, feel, you know, how do you feel? Tell me what you feel. They would ask me questions, you know, after each day we process and I'd go on the camera or the tape, the recording, and they say, you know, what did you get out of this? And I would make some kind of historical point, right? And they would say, yeah, but tell us a little more about like what you're feeling right now. And, you know, for me, I, that's, you know, that's, I think that's a fair and good exercise, but I was, I much more was thinking about this as a historian. Um, and now granted the trip certainly helped me to come to grips with America's Jim Crow past and the courageous efforts to overthrow it and develop a deeper sense. Uh, I think I did develop a deeper sense of empathy for the plight of African Americans in this country. So there were kind of, um, empathetic and kind of emotional responses to a lot of it. But, you know, as you might imagine, I also reflected, as I mentioned, historically. You know, I, like I said, I don't teach the civil rights movement, but as someone interested in history and memory and the public uses of history, I was very interested in the way the civil rights movement has been used in the conversations about race uh, that take place today, you know, how the civil rights movement is remembered or how it's been repurposed in our present day conversation, this idea of a usable past. Um, I left with a bunch of questions and a lot of interesting intellectual paths to follow. Uh, I don't know if you've been following the blog, but I recently read a, a great piece at The Intercept, the website The Intercept, on Gene Theo Harris's recent book titled A More Beautiful and Terrible Story, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. So I haven't read it yet. I blogged about it on October 9, 2017. You can go back and take a look at that. But I'm hoping that this book might be a kind of guide for me in sort of navigating these historical waters that are, again, fairly fairly new to me uh, as a historian. Yeah, but very obviously very relevant to the political right, conversations right. that are circling around so many things, whether that be, you know, uh, uh, kneeling during the national anthem or 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 issues surrounding uh, protests and, right. and and things we've talked about. Charlottesville. Yeah, exactly. Go back to our episode with Kelly Baker, right? But. That's not broadly speaking. Civil uh, civil rights movement isn't the subject of this episode. So, talk about your experience uh, learning about the music 
of the civil rights movement. Yeah, one of the stops we made, we spent several hours during our stay in Memphis at the Stax Museum of American Soul Music, uh, a place up until this time I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't even know this place existed. Um, and it turned out to be one of my favorite parts of the trip. I should even add something else here, Drew. Um, the, that morning, I had running to the bus in a rainstorm at lunch. I, I almost fell, but I, I tore up my, the back of my knee. So I was now limping by this point. Um, it wasn't too bad. I was fine. but So I had to limp through the museum. And I still consider it one of my favorite parts of the trip. So when we began to plan season four of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, I was hoping we might be able to book Jeff Kolath, the executive director of the museum. And I'm very pleased that he accepted our invitation to chat. You know what? I am too. I'm a music lover, obviously a history lover. So this is a nice moment of synchronicity. I'm very excited for the opportunity to explore the unique Memphis soul sounds with Jeff and perhaps also talk a little public history as well. Yeah, that's right. I also think Jeff will be the first person to say that museums and other public initiatives, history initiatives, public history initiatives, tend to rely heavily upon donations and support from the public. By the way, you see where we're, you see the, the, the segue, you see where we're going here, Drew. More synchronicity. Right. I should also add that the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is no different. So we could really use your support uh, to keep things going. So, Drew, why don't you take some time and tell us how our listeners can get involved? Yeah, that's right, John. We are not the Smithsonian. We don't have that kind of <laughs> that kind of fun. We'd to, like to be, though. Would, yeah. We would love it. As always, we are supported by Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. We are also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to join us, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com slash support. There you will find all the links for becoming either a recurring supporter or you can opt for a one-time donation. And also, don't forget, let's keep in touch via Twitter and Facebook at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. Yeah, thanks so much again. As I say every episode, thanks so much for all of you who support our work. We are, we are very ambitious here, I think, in a good way. I think at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, we would love to turn this into something more. We'd love to go weekly, um, but right now we just can't afford to do that. But, you know, with your help, perhaps uh, we can bring you more quality uh, history programming here on the podcast. Remember, American history is always uh, needed in our society, but it is especially needed in times of great political and social change. So please consider helping us becoming a patron uh, there are mugs, there are books to be had, a lot of goodies uh, if you if you join us, our patron team. So uh, I, I really hope that you'll uh, you'll consider uh, supporting um, our work, including uh, access to an episode specifically about your experience on the civil rights bus tour. Yeah, that's right. In one of our summer on- patrons only episodes, we actually interviewed Todd Allen, who led that tour, and we got a kind of real insider's look at civil rights tourism and some of the things that he does in, in exposing people to the, to the, to the movement. Yeah. If, if you really are curious about what, what the money goes to, uh, if you are a, one of our patrons, go listen to one of our first episodes and you will, you will notice a big upward sweep in, uh, quality from, from what we were doing then in, in which we were interviewing great guests and still doing all the, the, the kind of thinking that we're doing now, but the, the, the money and the support really goes to, paying for for our studio time and most specifically the uh the efforts of our our studio producer josh lowry absolutely so before we get to our interview today you do have a few more words on the subject for us 
parts of my commentary today appeared on the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and you can read them there if you check the entry for June 18, 2017. This is part of my diary from the Civil Rights Store, my public blog diary, if you will. And, and I begin this way. Last night, the bus pulled into the Drury Inn in Middletown, Ohio. We have officially left the South, but it also feels like we have traveled forward in time. Eight days ago, we entered the world of the civil rights movement in the years between 1954 and 1968. Time travel, of course, is impossible. But this week, we have come as close as possible to the kind of historical empathy I demand of all of my students. The world we entered eight days ago was a world of segregation, Jim Crow, and brutal violence against African Americans. It was also a world of hope, resistance, nonviolence, and Christian faith. Yesterday afternoon, our tour leaders popped in Raul Peck's powerful James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. We watched it on the bus DVD player. As I listened and watched, I was keenly aware of the distance between the movement in Greensboro, Selma, Montgomery, Albany, and Birmingham, and the more radical civil rights voices of the latter and post-King years. In some cases, nonviolence gave way to violence, hope gave way to bitterness, and Christian faith gave way to skepticism. Historians can debate the degree to which these changes took place, but they definitely took place. Baldwin complicates the narrative in ways that make white people uncomfortable. On Saturday, we spent most of the day in Nashville, Tennessee. When white Americans think about Nashville, they think about country music. But the civil rights movement has a very rich history in the music city. We began the day at the civil rights room of the Nashville Public Library, the only place in the city where the civil rights movement is interpreted. When we walked into this amazing room, we met Rip Patton, a Nashville resident who participated in the city's lunch counter sit-ins and freedom rides during the winter and spring of 1960. Patton walked us through the history of the movement as he experienced it. He was involved in integrating lunch counters throughout the city and was jailed as part of the second wave of freedom riders in May 1960. The civil rights movement in Nashville was split evenly between white and black activists. The African-American part of the movement was led by a group of students and ministers associated with the American Baptist Theological Seminary. As Patton described how James Lawson, John Lewis, Bernard Lafayette, and James Bevel ended up in Nashville, he spoke in terms that could only be described as providential. These men came to Nashville with a recommendation from Martin Luther King to train for the Christian ministry. Patton continued his providential language when he described how Diane Nash left Howard University after her freshman year and came to Fisk University. It seemed like it was all God-ordained. Training in nonviolent resistance began in Nashville in 1959. Since the movement was led by clergymen and clergymen in training, it took on a spiritual character. Patton said that the students were trained to ask, what would Jesus do when faced with difficult choices? During severe moments of violence and discrimination, they were taught to remove themselves from the situation through prayer and singing. 
Patton's civil rights movement was a spiritual movement, affirming the argument made by historian David Chappelle in his excellent book, Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow. Since so many ministers were in jail during the Freedom Rides, Patton said, we always had a church. And he added, we read the Bible a lot and prayed. Patton appealed to three Bible verses to explain why he participated in the civil rights movement. They were Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then there was Isaiah 6, 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And they appealed to Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. After Patton spoke and answered questions, Kwame Lillard, another Nashville participant in the movement, led us on a walking tour of civil rights sites in Nashville. Lillard trained students in nonviolent methods of protest and handled much of the administrative tasks for the sit-ins and freedom rides. In recent years, he has served as a Nashville city councilman. Lillard's civil rights journey was a little different than the one experienced by his friend Rip Patton. Lillard was more open about discussing structural racism, telling us several times that we took down the white only sign, but we didn't take down the white only mind. He was more willing to talk about violence and describe the battle for civil rights as a war. Lillard was the first person we met on this tour to talk extensively about Black Lives Matter and mention Malcolm X. At lunch, I invited Lillard to sit with my family in a booth at Sweats, one of Nashville's great soul food restaurants and a place often frequented by those in the movement. Here I got to learn more about his story. After playing his pivotal role in the Nashville movement in 1959 and 1960, Lillard moved to New York City to pursue graduate work at Hunter College. While in New York, he was influenced by the teaching of Malcolm X. He described the shift from the nonviolent approach of the Nashville movement to the more militant approach of Malcolm X as difficult. But he appreciated Malcolm's efforts at connecting his vision to similar fights for racial justice around the world. I learned a lot, Lillard told me, and realized that there was a lot going on in Africa and other places. Lillard even had a chance to meet Malcolm X at his New York apartment. Though he did not say it, I imagine that Lillard returned to Nashville in the mid-1970s with a different take on how to deal with race issues in the city. It was fascinating to listen to him describe his intellectual and spiritual journey. As the tour winded down, I was left wondering about usable pasts. Using the past to promote present-day agendas is always problematic. But I wonder if the civil rights movement of the people we met Juanita Jones Abernathy, Rutha Mae Harris, Carol McKinstry, and Rip Patton. Go Google them. Go look them up. I wonder if they provide the best way forward. Or does a more militant and radical approach, like the one associated with Malcolm X, James Baldwin, or Kwame Lillard, offer the best way forward as we seek to foster racial reconciliation in our communities? Perhaps a little of both. I need to keep reading and thinking. I'll be sitting when the evening comes 
Thanks, John. Our guest today is Jeff Kolath, the executive director of the Stax Museum of American Soul Music in Memphis, Tennessee, a position he has held since 2015. Kolath came to Stax from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he served as the public humanities manager for the university's Center for Humanities. Prior to his stint at UW-Madison, Kolath served as the curator of programs and exhibits at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum and director of museum experience at the Milwaukee County Historical Society. He majored in history at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and received a master's degree from the public history program at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where he wrote a thesis titled Soul City, Indianapolis's African-American Community and Soul Music, 1967 to 1974. We are thrilled today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to have Jeff Kolath with us, the executive director of the Stax Museum of American Soul Music in Memphis. I am really looking forward to this interview. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be with you. So for some of our listeners who may not have ever heard of Stax, and that's S-T-A-X, Stax, what is it? What is Stax? Um, and then maybe we could ask some follow-ups after you finish that with that answer. Sure. Well, Stax is a lot of things. Um, <laughs> you know, we talk, I mean, we, it is, it is both a noun, it is a verb, it is an adjective, it is, it right. is all of those things. And I mean, for us, it, I mean, for simply put, Stax is a, is a record company and production company. Um, started about, started 60 years ago this month, actually, in a, uh, garage up on the north side of Memphis near the old National Cemetery. And a gentleman by the name of Jim Stewart, he was working in a bank, was a country fiddle, uh, fiddle player in country bands in and around Memphis, um, out in, the, in, in other parts of West Tennessee and other parts of the Mid-South. And at that time, after Elvis really came to be and Sun Records was blowing up here in Memphis, you know, and just the pro- proliferation of the record industry period, everybody thought they could make a record. Right. And it was really cheap to make a record. And so that, you know, you didn't need fancy recording equipment to do it. And, and, and in Mr. Stewart's case, um, he borrowed a recorder and an amplifier from his barber, this guy named Marshall Ellis, who was also making records at I the time. I love it. I love it. And, um, so he recorded a, a gentleman by the name of Fred Byler, who was the bass player in his band, the Tennessee Cotton Pickers. And it was um, Jim Stewart, Fred Byler, guitar player by the name of Neil Herbert, and I think the piano player's name was Nadine Eston. And recorded a song called Blue Roses, the B-side of which were the only two songs that Jim Stewart has a solo writing credit on in his entire career. So this is in 1957. Okay. Um, it's a country song. And that is what Mr. Stewart knew. That is the music that he knew. That's the music that his friends played. So they put it out. Really doesn't go anywhere. Um, the second single, they come back with this great uh, rockabilly song, a guy by the name of Don Willis, which just has some really great echo, you know, guitar on it. Very indicative of the time of the rockabilly that was coming out in Memphis. And really just trying to trying to find a hit. And he doesn't really find a hit until he records his first African-American singing group, the Belltones, which okay. was a group that was singing over in West Memphis. And it's the first record that he sells, and it's also the first record that gets played on the radio, on WDIA radio out here in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Rufus Thomas was the disc jockey. And from there, everything really changes. Um, and at that time, they were known as Satellite. 
when they moved to South Memphis, where we currently are in the Corner College of Macklemore, inhabiting the old Capitol Theater. Uh, changed their name to Stacks. The ST is for Jim Stewart, and the AX is for his sister, Estelle Axton, and really okay. what they established after those very basic roots up in North Memphis and a slight stopover, short stopover in Brunswick, Tennessee, really established the greatest Southern soul and R&B record label that the world's ever seen. Spoken like a true executive director, right? The greatest. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and, and, and again, Stax is... is Brought brought us Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, Booker T and the MGs, the Staple Singers, Isaac Hayes, David Porter, and hundreds of other right. acts as well. And Stax is so much more than a music. Stax is a feeling. It is a mood. It is a way of life in a lot of ways. Um, it is something that we take very seriously here. We're very protective of the legacy of our artists. Um, we also try to tell the story in ways that are unique and interesting. We really try to pay homage to the to the engineers, the producers, the office employees, the sidemen, sure. people that worked in the mailroom too, because they're just as much as part of the story yeah. as everybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, this old, Memphis is a unique place, and those of you that are listening who have been here and y'all have been here and um, know that, and this could only have happened in Memphis, Tennessee. Sure. And being a, being a transplant, that became very apparent to me my first, my yeah. first couple of months here is that Memphis is a unique place, and, and Stax is really part of the fabric of this community. Yeah, let me let me ask you a little bit more about that. You know, what you know, tell me, take me inside Memphis in like the late fifties, early sixties. Why do you think this particular brand of soul music, Stax, kind of emerges at the time it did? Well, I mean, obviously, like other areas and cities in, in the South, Memphis was a segregated city at that time. Right. So, black communities and white communities live very separately. But the black community here in Memphis had a long history of political engagement, political involvement, um, businesses that were that were that were quite successful, and really learning how to sort of operate within the parameters decided by the uh, the powers that be in, in the city. And one of the things that started to happen was in the during the war and the post-war era, the rise of the working class, the rise of the middle class, and especially the rise of a black working class. Mm-hmm. And really what starts to happen, what propagated Stacks coming here, or prompted uh, Jim Stewart to move here, was what was white flight. And sure. white flight is a reality. It is in many southern cities and, and many cities in general. And the neighborhood that Stacks reside, resided in and our museum currently resides in was in, as late as the mid-1950s, a white working class neighborhood. Interesting. Um, the Capitol Theater, which was an old movie house, the last concert that we have record that they did before it turned into Stacks was a Mel Tillis concert. Wow. <laughs> and so, needless to say, Mel Tillis would not have been a big draw in the mid-1960s in, 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 in South Memphis. But at that time, he was. So really, you start to see this transition from a white working class neighborhood to a black working class neighborhood. And music, in a lot of ways was sort of the way for black and white to come together. There was such a great appreciation for black musicians among the white community and so many of the young people that got their start here at Stack, Steve Cropper, Packy Axton, Wayne Jackson, Don Nix, and the list go duck done, the list goes on and on. Much of what they learned, they learned from the black musicians that played in the nightclubs downtown, that played across the river in West Memphis, Arkansas. And so they there was an appreciation for all of that, but really what happens in Memphis is it is being a river town and being so close to so many different, you know, types of music 
Memphis music is it becomes its own genre yeah. in, in a lot of ways because there is so much interplay. You're bringing jazz influences from New Orleans and, and St. Louis. You're bringing in hill country blues and the Delta blues from just south of you know south of here down into Mississippi. You're bringing in hillbilly music and country country music from from uh, Appalachia and mm-hmm. from other parts of rural Tennessee. Plus the power of the radio at yeah. that time too. Grand Ole Opry was huge. I mean, Isaac Hayes talks about one of the first things he remembers listening to was the Grand Ole Opry when he was growing up out in Covington, yeah. Tennessee. So you have all this sort of coming together and all you needed was a place for it to all come together. Right. And Stacks became that place. Yeah. Um, you have musicians with a variety of different backgrounds, interests, skill levels, talents, but also needed a catalyst to make it all go. And that, that's what happened here. Sure. So, so what were the years in which Stacks was kind of, you know, sort of at its height, if you will? So got started in 57, moved here to South Memphis in 1960 and really takes off in 1962 when a lightning bolt named Otis Redding shows up on the, uh, on the front step um, as the driver for Johnny Jenkins, who was a guitar player and a chitlin circuit guy who was cutting a session here at Stax. And basically from about 1962 to Otis's death in 1967, Stax did nothing but gain in popularity at at that time it's important to remember they were a production they were putting out records but they were a production company stacks was a label it was distributed by atlantic records um and then of course it really i I won't get into all the sort of business details because that would we don't need a whole other episode um but basically in 1968 after otis's passing after the passing of dr king and after some business agreement with atlantic falls apart um, the label starts over with pretty with some of the same artists, but some new artists. So 1962 to 67 is a period of great success and rise. Creators in 68, and then 68 to 72 is another period of rise. And then 72, and then until the label's closure in 1975 is really sort of a, a slow decline, but also a, a time of great creativity and, and really a lot of interesting music that doesn't get a lot of credit for how good it actually is. Sure. And, and am I right to understand that the, it's back? The label's back? There's a revival or no? Yeah. So Stax, so when Stax was forced into bankruptcy, December 1975, uh, went up for auction. It was purchased by Fantasy Records out of California. Creedence Clearwater was on Fantasy and mm. put out a ton of jazz records. Fantasy owned Stacks and restarted it in the late 70s. Um, they actually opened an office back here in Memphis um, and broke some new artists, but mainly just put out older products. And then right around the turn of the century, um, maybe a little bit after, I can't remember the exact date, Fantasy was purchased by Concord Music Group out of California. So Concord owns the Stacks label now. Okay. And yes, they have several artists on their label. The most popular one right now is Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. Um, and the, then the first Memphis band to be signed to Stacks since 1975, Southern Avenue, which is two sisters from here in South Memphis on singing and playing drums, a keyboard player from our Stacks Music Academy, and then a guitar player from Israel. Okay, <laughs> so, interesting, interesting. Yeah. Drew, you had a question. Yeah, well, I mean, I think for, for many of us, when we think about the, the rise of a kind of national black pop sound we think of motown and of course i mean my mom is a big motown fan so i always grew up listening to motown records but um you know obviously you're telling a story about a, a very different kind of setting a different sound so how does stacks differ specifically from motown so 
I'll, I'll talk about it a couple of different ways. Motown's making pop records. Stax is making R&B records. And there's a difference. Um, and really, the best way to do it is to get in your car and find an AM radio station that plays oldies or music. And hopefully, or, or fi- if you can find a way to recreate it. And if you listen to a Motown record on AM radio and you listen to a Stax record on AM radio, the difference becomes very clear. Um, Motown is very highly arranged, highly orchestrated um, strings and brass and everything was charted. Even the vocals were charted at Motown. Everything was very sort of geared towards a mainstream pop consumer audience, which at that time were you know young teenagers with disposable income, um, white, especially white suburban teenagers in a lot of ways. Um, and again, most of those artists at Motown were, were African-American. They had some white members of their band in the studio, but so much of that music is very, to me, comes across as very pop and is very sort of you know, planned out. Stax is the antithesis of that in so many ways. Um, and the way to do it is, again, by playing it on the radio, when you listen to Motown, you hear a very high sound. So you hear a lot of brass, you hear a lot of cymbals, you hear strings, you hear rhythm guitar, but you don't hear what you really don't hear, even though James Jamerson's one of the base, greatest bass players of all time. You don't hear a strong... You don't hear a strong, thick middle or a thick bottom. When you listen to stacks, that's all you really hear yeah, in my yeah, So it's sort of stacks. Rufus Thomas always describes it as, you know, stacks is hits you, hits you in the gut uh-huh. and hits you right in the middle. And that's really true. And so what stacks is doing, and again, they had strings and they had brass and they did arrange some things, especially later on, but those early records are very much a bunch of young people in the studio figuring out how to put, how to arrange music, how to put together a record and doing it all in one take. Um, You know, they, it was sort of, they had, they didn't do overdubbing until later on. Everything was sort of, they had eight inputs and a mono board and it was figure it out as you go and try to get the best take. And I was, we did an oral history yesterday with a session musician by the name of, an engineer and producer by the name of Bobby Manuel. And he was talking about Booker T and the MGs and how they would work out their songs and how Al Jackson Jr., the drummer, would make, would let Booker T. Jones, Steve Cropper, and Duck Dunn figure it all out. And he wouldn't play the drums. And they used to get so frustrated with him because he wouldn't play the drums. Uh-huh. And the reason why he wouldn't play the drums is that he didn't want to waste the groove. You would wait for them to figure out their parts. And then he's like, okay, you got to figure it out. Now I'll put my groove on it. So stacks in so many ways is about finding that groove and finding and and living for that sort of moment in the studio where it all comes together and then trying to get it down on tape. Yeah. You definitely get that impression that sort of stacks is a kind of, it's a movement. It's a, I think you did, what did you describe it before? It's a feeling, a a kind of way of being almost right. And, and that, that does come across. I, like I said, I toured the museum. I said this before you came on. I toured the museum uh, this summer, and, and you do get that kind of feel. I had heard about Stacks before, but I guess never really had thought deeply about who the artists were and so forth. And I just happened to be visiting the museum uh, while I was on a much larger 10-day civil rights bus tour. So, so I was obviously thinking about you know Stacks in kind of some larger context, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. But tell us a little bit about the museum. You run the museum. Uh, when was the museum started? What is your what is the mission uh, of the museum? Uh, what do you what do you do there, and why should uh, everybody make a visit? We've been around since uh, 2003. Okay. Um, so it'll be our 50th anniversary next year. We're part of our larger organization. It's called the Soulsville Foundation, uh, which was started in 1999. And they have the Stacks Museum, uh, the Stacks Music Academy, which is an after-school program for grades 6 through 12 for at- at-risk youth, um, sort of uh, after-school music learning program. They have a production element now. And they really... Um, take the history of Stacks and sort of the ethos of Stacks music and sort of project that forward into a variety of different ways for from ensemble work to vocal work to percussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a jazz band, any number of other ensembles too. And then we also have a public charter school, the Soulsville Charter School, which opened in 2005. Uh, 100% graduation rate, 100% college acceptance. Great. Um, and most, of the, the, most of those students do come, or about a quarter of the students come from our neighborhood here, and that, that's also grades 6 through 12. So the museum is one-third of what our overall organization is. And our, I mean, we tell the story of not just Stax records, but American soul music in general, with a particular focus on the Memphis sound and Stacks. The majority of our artifacts are highlight various Stacks artists from Booker T and the MGs and Carla and Rufus Thomas all the way up to Isaac Hayes and the Bar Hayes and other, other other artists too. And so, really, what we're trying to communicate is sort of again what I was referring to before: how all this only could have happened in Memphis. The uniqueness yeah. of the Stacks story, the uniqueness of the environment. Again, black and white musicians and business people coming together in the segregated South under one roof to create timeless music. And so since I've, I've been here for two years and really what our, what we're really working on now is building public programming, building education, uh, educational outreach and other opportunities to really establish ourselves um, here in Memphis. Although we've been around for 15 years, like the other, like Graceland and Sun Studios, we are, we, we do first and foremost cater to an out of town audience. Sure. Um, the majority of our visitation does come from outside of Memphis. And without that visitation, which we're very grateful for, we couldn't, we couldn't keep the doors open. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so really, you know, we, it's, it's a place for our out of town guests to come and, and learn about, we are, we are one part of the Memphis music story, but I think we're probably in a lot of ways, we're the most, indicative of memphis um uh, because of the story because it is rooted it's it's rooted in place and it's kind of it's kind of stayed here um in terms of the location obviously sun studios you know is is where sun or um where where elvis made records and sam phillips made records and so on Um, but really where stacks is is you know this is it's an important part this wouldn't work on beale street you know, sure, it's important. Sure. That, it's important that we're here. So, yeah, yeah we're open. I mean, we're open Tuesday through Sunday, ten to five every day, and always have a changing a slate of changing exhibitions. We do a lot of programming. We have a lot of free music. So, our out of town guests, if you come on the right day, you'll get a chance to see some great free uh, live entertainment too. Yeah, I actually saw some of your. Uh, I know this is not connected with the museum. Some of the some of the students from the academy. Uh, yeah. I watched them do a set at um, uh, is it Memphis Blues, the the touristy. Rip- oh, BB Kings. BB yeah. Kings, yeah, BB yeah. Kings. Yeah. yeah, they they were on stage there, and I I sat there at the bar for about you know maybe forty five minutes and watched their whole set, and I think we even held up the tour bus, you know, because <laughs> because they were so good. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about you. You mentioned you've been there for two years. Um, you know, how, what are you, what's your background and, and how does a guy like you, uh, end up, uh, as a direct, as the executive director of, um, of, uh, the Stacks Museum? Uh, you know, some skill, but a lot of luck. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, no, I, my, my back, I have a background in public history, a master's degree in public history from Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, and wrote my master's thesis on soul music and civil rights in Indianapolis um, from 68 to 74. Okay. A lot, a lot of the work that I did for that and sort of the, the oral histories that I did, the research, but also just sort of studying a small, a very small scene in comparison to what Memphis is, sure. but lear- understanding the importance of, of music to a community and how it reflects what, what's going on in that community at any given point in time. So, um, after graduate school, returned home and got a job at the Wisconsin Veterans Museum doing military history for eight years, um, which was a remarkable experience in so many ways, working closely with veterans and their families to tell their stories. Um, and then worked in Milwaukee for a little while, and then I actually was working in higher education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison okay. in the Center for the Humanities, doing public humanities work and working with graduate students, um, which I love doing and had you know, honestly had sort of come to the conclusion that that is where my, my, my career path had taken me. And I was super, I was elated with the job and who I worked with. And then this opportunity came up and, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's a remarkable thing to work here and to be around, you know, a lot of the musicians and the people that worked in the office and being able to uh, talk to them and ask them questions. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting job because, when you come at it from a fan's perspective, like a lot of our visitors do, they only know but one part of the story. And when you start peeling back all of those layers, there's so much more there. So being able to discover the backstory behind certain songs or, you know, why right. things sound this way and the technology that was used. And, you know, we're, I'm a really big, I have a lot of interest in how Stacks was marketed. Um, and I think a lot of us here that, that work do too, it's sort of that outward how, how the public perceives stacks and how, you know, the, the label tried to present itself. So right. we do a lot of work trying to collect, um, trying to collect uh, advertisements and other things too. So it's sort of a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. And really, again, it, it brings together sort of my academic background, but also some of my early profession when I was doing military history, because we're working with veterans and working with musicians is sometimes very similar in, mm. the, in, in the concept of memory and, yeah. You know, you can, you can talk to three veterans. You know, I used to work with Vietnam veterans extensively. And so we would get, say, if you interviewed 10, 10 Vietnam veterans, you would get 10 different stories. Yeah. And part of that's because of the nature of war and branches of service and MOSs and all that stuff. And that's that I, I get that. But also, their construct of their memory is the story of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So what happened to them is the right way. That's what happened. Yeah. And even though well, that's what happened with you, but there's so much more that happened with all these other nine people. Working with musicians is very similar because based on when they were here at Stax, who they pl- what they played on, who they played with, where they worked. Um, and so trying to ferret out some of those differences because there's a lot of discrepancies in the story and uh, <laughs> trying to make sense of all of that poses a challenge. But I think, you know, the more that we engage with um, the people that worked here and allow them to tell their tell their stories their way, um, the more success that we've been able to have. 
Absolutely, yeah. And it sounds like a very unique opportunity for a public historian. And, you know, did you ever think that you would get a chance to sort of go back to that original master's thesis and, and, and work in public history related to, uh, uh, you know, the music that you loved? So, uh, yeah. no, not at all. And yeah. actually, the funny, the funny thing was I had written liner notes for a compilation in 2006. And I got an email from the, the record company that was going to put it out saying, hey, we're finally doing this thing. Can you go back and look at your notes? And, look <laughs> at what, and I look, went back and I looked at what I wrote in 2006. Like, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I basically, you know, rewrote the whole thing and, and, and did another interview or two. But it was what was interesting about it was I had thought that that was dead and gone. And and now it's it's not. And again, I don't think I'm going to be doing any programming on some Indianapolis soul music here in Memphis. But right, right. Um, but so much of what I did back then informs what I'm doing now. Yeah, that's great. Well, our time's just about up here, Jeff. But uh, we, we thought we'd end with a couple of uh fun questions about the museum for you. So Drew, you take the first one. Yeah. Well, I, I almost feel like I'm asking a parent to pick their favorite child, but, uh, <laughs> uh who is your favorite Stax artist? Um, that's a tough one. Um, you, you must know, have been asked this before, Jeff. I have. And it's, the answer, <laughs> it's sort of like, well, who's your favorite Stax artist today? I think is the better question. So who is my favorite sax artist today? Well, the re- last record I listened to was Woman to Woman by Shirley Brown. Okay. And <clears throat> one, I love the record all the way through. It's amazing. It's the last, <clears throat> Woman to Woman, the single is the last number one record that Stax put out. The story of how the record came out is is interesting in that it was a, a workaround to get the record to market outside of the distribution, the failed distribution deal they had with CBS Records. But the the record itself is so well put together. It is so well made. Um, the production work is stellar. The song selection is stellar. Shirley Brown's amazing. So Shirley Brown is my answer for today. But but most days I say Isaac Hayes. So. Isaac Hayes. Okay. Yeah, it was amazing. After I, after I got after I went through the the museum when I visited this summer, I got back on the bus and I downloaded like a bunch of. Uh, you know, pulled out an iTunes gift card that someone had given me. I downloaded a bunch of Stax music. It was great. Um, next, final question here. Um, uh, you know, I've walked through this exhibit. There's some amazing stuff in it. What is your favorite part of the exhibit? Um, well, being a record nerd, uh, <laughs> that I, uh, the Hall of Records is amazing. I mean, eight, 280 LPs. We have all the yeah. LPs now. Yeah. Um, about 940 singles. We're missing about 85 or so. Um, and so to me, that is, it's, it's cool to see everything on the wall. It's overwhelming just because it goes, it's from floor to ceiling. Um, but it's so graphically interesting. And plus you really get an idea of how the company progressed from again, sort of this country label to an R and B label. And then after 1968 making, records in any and every kind of genre from jazz and spoken word to comedy and, and, and progressive rock. So um, to me, that's, that's my favorite place to be. Um, but you can't really top Isaac Hayes' 72 Cadillac. I was going to um, ask you about that. Yeah. Was, is that probably the most popular um, of the, of the exhibits in terms of, you know, visitors commenting? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the yeah. two things that we probably get the most that people point out the most are the Mom's Mabley record we have in the Hall of Records, okay. which is if I had a dollar for every time I saw somebody talking about that record, yeah. and then Isaac's car, which is 
Again, 72 Cadillac Eldorado, custom from top to bottom, 24 karat gold trim, TV in the front seat, uh, refrigerator and bar in the back, yeah. um, custom interior. I mean, it's 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 basic. It is so Isaac. It is so fitting of the era. It's also just reflection of honestly Stax's success. Even yeah. though that success was sort of built a little bit on a house of cards, um, it was they they were really making. Really doing some putting out, putting out great records, selling lots of records, and at that time, you know, their artists were very powerful, and Isaac Isaac was the guy. So maybe, I, maybe, I, I I just love it. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm remembering this the wrong way, but don't you also have it? I could be wrong. Don't you have it on like a circuit? Isn't it rotating? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's, so it's going like a car show. You know, it's going around. Yeah, my wife. If you look at my wife's phone, she's probably has like you know. Uh, only one picture from the Stacks Museum, and it's a selfie with her with the Isaac, you know, with the Isaac Hayes car in the background. So, uh, hey, always use a spokesmodel. So. Yeah, that's right. I'll tell I'll tell her that, if she, um, or maybe she'll listen. Um, Jeff, this is, Jeff, this this yeah, maybe she'll listen. Right? This has been this has been great. Um, you know, I would encourage everyone to if you're in Memphis, you know. Um, you know, this is this is definitely one of the places you want to visit uh, for people who might be, um, for, you know, planning a trip to Memphis. How can they learn more about the museum? Uh, you can visit our website, stacksmuseum.com, plus Facebook, tw- uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, our, our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram accounts are unique because we not only talk about what we're doing at the museum, but we also post a lot of photos from our archives right. um, on Fridays. And I tend to get a little bored. I'll pull a 45 out of storage and put a 45 on the turntable okay. and record a clip from it. Um, so that's always something to look out for too. Um, but yeah, we're you know we're open year round. Obviously, we're, we're off closed on the big days, Thanksgiving, right, right. Uh, Christmas, New Year's, that sort of thing. But 10 to 5 every day, Tuesday through Tuesday through Sunday, um, closed on Mondays. And yeah, I mean it's it's a great place to visit. Memphis is an amazing place. Um, if you've got an extra 36 to 48 hours on, on, on a trip, um, please come. You know, gr- great place to see amazing food, good people. Um, you know, the weather is pretty good for, well, for me, I'm beyond from Wisconsin. So the yeah, summer yeah. is miserable here. <laughs> yeah. But so, so the fall is great. Um, but no, I think we'd, we'd, we'd love to have, uh, we'll love to have you all come by and really show you what, what Stacks Records is all about. Absolutely. We've been talking today with Jeff Colat, the executive director of the Stacks Museum of American Soul Music in Memphis, Tennessee. Jeff, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, guys. It was really fun. Great. Appreciate it. As I said, in, as I said earlier in the episode, that visit to the Stacks Museum was one of my favorite visits um, on the Civil Rights Tour. It was just—I had not known much about Stacks, and then, and then to um, uh, you know to, to to realize just how much I did know about Stacks without knowing it was Stacks. So you know, Isaac Hayes, uh, you know, um, um, 
Otis Redding and so forth, you know, and then I was telling, uh, Jeff, you know, listening to, uh, the, the, the kids from the stacks Academy doing soul man at BB Kings, you know, on Beale street. So, yeah, I mean, he's right that, that stacks music, go and listen to it. You could probably find like a, a YouTube mix, you know, if you type in stacks mix or something on YouTube, and maybe we'll make a link to that too, at some point on the blog, uh, you really can get a, a sense of, of just, uh, how much music, how much popular music, uh, they produced and, and music that you all know. Yeah. I, w- one of the things that really fascinated me as we were listening to the, uh, listening to Jeff describe the, the importance that Stax has to, to Memphis. And we related it to the importance of Motown and Detroit and is, I, I think for those of us now in the 21st century, we don't have that same connection to, to a particular place in the, in its particular sound. You know, I mean, I, I grew up in, in the height of, as a kid, uh, in the height of grunge music, which was this kind of Seattle sound, right? And, and yeah. it, was, it was interesting because I, I think we've lost a little bit of that. We don't have the same, um, this, we don't have the same kind of artists that really represent a particular city. Like the Asbury Park, New Jersey sound, I was, legendary Bruce Springsteen. I was right? setting you up for that. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> gee, I hit it out of the park. Thanks for the softball. Um, <laughs> No, no, that's, that is definitely true. You get that feel too in the museum, uh, that, you know, Motown, Motown, I love Motown, right. But Motown is, is took on such a national, you know, a national kind of, um, uh, um, what did he call it? Uh, Motown was pop, right. Right. And it, it took on a much more of a national flavor. Everybody knew Motown, but you know, I like how he describes stacks. I think whether you use that term, like a punch in the gut, you know, it's like, uh, they're, they're operating in a sort of locality. They are born out of a particular place. They're, they're, um, kind of always seems to be on like a shoestring kind of budget. Right. And then they have these artists that are deeply committed to the kind of vision of, of the founders of stacks. So, um, it's, it's really a great story of American popular culture, um, African-American history that I wish people knew more about, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of these, one of the things I learned on the civil rights movement is, you know, so much of the civil rights movement was, was so place centered as well, right. Rooted in the experiences and the history of cities and towns and, and the injustices in those places and, uh, you know, Stax fits that bill too. And, and it, it's the music of, of, in many ways, uh, the civil rights movement in Memphis. And then, you know, in whatever sense it went to beyond the bounds of Memphis, you know, that's important too, but it's, it's so rooted. Yeah. I, so you've been to Stax. I haven't had, had the opportunity to go there myself, but this summer I did get the opportunity to go to the new African-American museum there on the national mall. In uh, DC. With, yeah. In the DC yeah. with the Smithsonian and the, and they have a whole, a whole wing dedicated to to black popular music, and what what's interesting? I mean, it's a wonderfully well curated part of the museum. I mean, I mean, the museum is fascinating and, yeah. and fabulous, top to bottom. But that part of the wing is is really interesting. But you you kind of you have Jimi Hendrix next to Bootsy Collins, next to Michael Jackson, next right. to and, and it's and it it really does an amazing job of talking about the breadth and 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 the how wide reaching. Uh, pop music, especially African American pop music, has been uh, in the twentieth and twenty first century. But but what you do miss is that little kind of local, yeah. like this is rooted in a, in a particular struggle yeah. in a particular city. So I, I feel honestly, yeah. to get a good understanding of it, you need both. And absolutely, and um, it's really neat to see see uh, a museum, you know, doing so kind of doing so well. You know, that yeah. that's a yeah. 
So yeah, if you get if you're in Memphis, definitely. I said this to Jeff when Jeff was on. You got to stop there. It's a little bit off the beaten path, if I remember correctly. But you know, look it up, find it. Uh, the Stax Museum of American Soul Music. Um, well, Drew, I think that's a wrap for today. Episode twenty-eight in the books. We did it. Yeah, and um, you know, hopefully you've enjoyed some of the cuts from Stax Music too that we've had throughout the course of this episode. We tried something a little bit different. How do you do an episode on on uh, on soul music without playing a little bit of uh, a little bit of stacks. So um, thank you again for listening. And as always, may your way of improvement lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Jeff Kolath. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. <laughs>